Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Sherba, and today I'm extremely excited to be sitting down with Ray Velez, Global Chief Technology Officer at Publicis Sapien. Ray, welcome to the podcast. Very excited to have you on. I've been looking forward to this one. Let's just jump right into it. How about you take us through your career journey leading up until this point? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I, I, I you know, I think I'm fortunate. Um, I, I started off at a young age. I fell in t- love with computer science, right? And I ended up studying computer right. science. I was 10 years old. I saved up on my paper route to buy an Atari 800. My mom was nice <laughs> enough to send me to computer camp, which is pretty nerdy back then. But yeah, you know, I, I fell in love with it right away. And I still remember to this day, the way, the way you really kind of dipped your toe in with computer science is you, you copied a program out of uh, the book that came with the Atari 800. And it was this little program that drew lines out of the center. Right. And yeah. then, then you went in and I, I tweaked, you know, a couple of the parameters. I think it was a, a four, you know, a four do loop. And I made some changes. I remember thinking, wow, it's just an amazing palette. And so that, yeah. that's kind of, I, I still say that because that's still what I love about computers today and, and how much they enable us to leverage that infrastructure as a palette to paint new things. Right. Right. And right, right. Nowadays, right. You know, we say transformation and changing, helping businesses change, but it's really solving challenges with this really flexible structure of, of this new language that we can speak. So that, that's where it started. I studied, uh, I studied university at Boston University. I studied computer science and philosophy. And so I was a, mm. a double major. And back then, since I'm, uh, you know, a little bit older, everybody thought it was kind of crazy, you know, and eventually I think uh, a lot of the universities actually brought the two together. But what really? we do, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting, but it was two separate programs. And where, where I started to see the two come together is we had a ton of things that we hadn't answered yet. Right. And when you, when you look at what philosophy does, it's trying to help answer those things. And to this day, I think we are still trying to do that. And so towards the, the end of uh, my undergrad, I, I, I focused that, that uh, thinking around this concept of the philosophy of science, in, in particular, how it, how it applies to, at the time, some of the constructs we were thinking about in terms of artificial intelligence and how right. those unanswered elements can potentially be answered by this language of, of code, if you will. Um, so that, that's really when it started. And then I went to a company, uh, went right across the river, a company called Cambridge Technology Partners. That's why when we came back together uh, at Science, I thought it was kind of funny because Science was was a spinoff of, of Cambridge Technology Partners. Jerry and Stu, right. the two co-founders, were at CTP. So CTP was a great experience. They had this interesting technology consulting model, which was basically, and I remember the CEO saying this one time on the news. And when I when I recently joined, he's like, you know, I've got a great business model. I hire these, you know, young kids out of college. I build them out at a high rate and I pay them very little, right? That's your yeah. consulting model. I remember thinking, well, it doesn't really make me feel great about this situation, <laughs> but it was a really great opportunity. The great opportunity right. was, you know, we were always kind of in a position where we, we tried this thing, which is a really bad idea. And I think it's still a bad idea today, 
but it was fixed price and fixed time. So we would say, we're going to do this in this timeline, right? And I think the agile methodology has supplanted it. By, by constantly over-promising, we were always overworking, right? So the right, excitement was right. we had a great culture and we had great energy. And what we learned in one year was like what you would learn in most places in five years. So right. I, I loved working at Cambridge Technology Partners. I thought it was an amazing jumping off point to really get started in, in the space. And that was, in those days, it was client server. So we were doing a lot of things in, in the tech space, C Unix programming and, and things of that nature. So it was a really great kickoff. And then when when the internet um, changes came around, I you know I still remember you know uh, installing the hotspot browser and yeah. you know, some of the first versions of Java, and that was really exciting because then we started to see well this client server thing's really doomed, right? So a lot of us left, and at one point uh, CTP, which is now Atos, um, had lost about fifty percent of the team, but we all oh, wow. went to these dot com consultancies, right? And so that was another great kind of epic in in my career because what was really exciting about that was just this and and I thought the um I uh I forget who coined it I think it was uh one of the Fed uh, officers saying, you know, we're in this moment of irrational exuberance, which was pretty oh, exciting. I mean, it was yeah. a hard fall, but we were like the promise, and it feels a lot like the Web3 promise today, but the promise of the internet back there and the, the amount of funds being put into that promise, it was just super exciting to be part of that. Now, there was this huge rise. I was at a company called Science, and there was this, you know, huge jump in, in our value. We had, you know, 80 cent shares worth $110 a share and less in a couple of weeks, you know, just oh, wow. massive irrational exuberance. It was just crazy. But it, it was another kind of epic on top of that Cambridge work where, you know, it wasn't as we weren't necessarily signing up for these unreasonable fixed price, fixed time engagements. But what we were doing is just treading new ground, right? Trying to figure out how to get this internet thing to scale. How do we make things meet the massive opportunity that the internet was proposing? And so, um, you know, one of, one of the jokes I always make, I talk a lot about MajorLeagueBaseball.com. I was the interim CTO at that startup. And it's kind of like if you, uh, it's always, I always say that back at band camp, like that was <laughs> 14 experience for me, like all of everything I still pull on today goes back to that. And it, it was a couple of reasons, right? We did some things that weren't happening before that machine learning and AI uh, kind of, you started to see the potential. So right. we, uh, back on MLB, we built this capability that allowed you to take all of the in-game statistics and then map that to events within a video and then run a uh. query against that, literally a query. And then we would extract uh, the, the elements of a new video. So show me all the at bats that Derek Cheater had at night on grass. Right. And so right. We, we're doing that. And that was like really amazing. And to even think it was feasible back then, which it was um, to, and help lay the foundation for, for that next generation experience. So like doing those types of things within one year, it was just amazing even back then. Um, and, th and then the, the other part was, you know, the, to have the ability to really help birth, you know, this new organization, right? It was called Major League Baseball Advanced Media at the time, um, was just a, a, you know, an amazing experience because there were organizational challenges, technology challenges. And our, our infrastructures back then were not ready to, to support, you know, the volumes of baseball. Right, right. right. You know, it was just crazy. But the, when, well, one of the big things we did leading up to, to the, um, to the long, the, the massive, you know, 30 team wide single platform launch was we would launch for season ticket holders, which everyone runs to buy at the same time, right? Of course. So, yeah. Right. And I remember launching this for the Cubs and the Cubs had this weird uh, wristband type of system that everybody went 
to to Wrigley Field at the same time to get online for the season oh, tickets. Wow, yeah. It was just crazy. And so all those same people, you know, once you turned it on online, they were running to the online too. And everything was just melting down, right? There was yeah. there was no cloud computing. We were literally in the data centers, <laughs> plugging and turning on and rebooting servers just to try to keep up with it. And so like it set this really amazing grounding within a year to understand, okay, what are the core principles for how to to, to build these systems in, with the internet scale. So it was just a, a great experience. And then my, my buddy was looking at my LinkedIn the other day and he's like, Ray, what's wrong with you? You've been at the same company for 25 years. But essentially what happened, so, you know, Scient, we had this amazing up and then, you know, the dot-com boom. Right. And we got merged together in a bunch of different brands. And then we got sold to, to Microsoft. And so we were part of Microsoft for two years. And at that point, our brand ended up being Razorfish, which was really the majority of the tenure of, of where my career has been. And that was super exciting to get, you know, under the covers of the world's largest software company and understand the impact they can have on, on the work we do, our clients just totally opened up a whole perspective I, I didn't have right. in, in the past. Um, and then there was another culture shock moment in my career. We got sold from the world's largest software company to Publicis, right? I, I was at Razorfish at the time to one of the world's largest advertising companies. It was just a whole, you know, again, another whole exposure to a completely different world that yeah. has been around a lot longer than we've been around and a lot longer than Microsoft's been around, right? Like right. Microsoft's not a young company, but Publis has been around for 90 years, right? They yeah, exactly. Ad media, creative industry, right? Like iconically have changed the world in, for the last 90 years. So that was a whole, you know, other uh, opportunity. And so to my friend making fun of me, I've been at the same company for 25 years. It's been amazing adventures every step of the way. And, and that's really helped uh, keep this energy for, for what we do today. And, and when I look back to, you know, what, what I learned when I first plugged in that Atari 800 to what we're doing today, it's really helping our clients solve issues they haven't solved before with this, with this new language, right, of computing, right. of storage, of machine learning, of, of experiences. And so it's, it's, uh, it's still, you know, I, I count myself really lucky, still really excited to be in the space we're in. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I'm really excited to just dig into to, to the career journey, because as you mentioned, right, the, the, even though on a surface, if you were to look at it as like one line and it says 25 years at one organization, there is so many different cultures that you've experienced and um, so many different organizational structures and 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 that you've had to remain relevant in and continue to progress through. And, and I think there's a lot of people who go through that sort of experience that, um, you know, are really struggling to potentially navigate how to continue to have forward momentum and continue their growth in those scenarios. But before we dive into to that aspect, just going back down to kind of the earlier stages in career, when you talk about, for example, you know, I, I laugh when you say, you know, bill high, pay little, and you, you know, overpromise. And in my head, I think overpromise, and I predicted the words underdeliver, but instead you just said overwork. I'm like, ah, you know what? That sounds funny, and I feel like that's probably par for the course for a lot of people who work for in consulting, right? Um, but, uh, I think we all strive for better, uh, work-life balance and culture these days, but I laugh at that just having been a junior associate at a consulting company, right. I, I, you know, um, I, I can totally understand that, um, sentiment, but then when you talk about from there, uh, you know, no longer the fixed price, fixed time model, but just going into uncharted waters and, 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 and when it comes to the internet, trying to really shape what companies are doing the internet. Talk a little bit more about that. And, 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 and then particularly how you parallel that 
to what's happening today with with Web3 and Metaverse, because I have to feel like they're very similar scenarios. And, and the way you navigated then probably will lead you to be you know, much more comfortable navigating the ambiguity today. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think th- and, and I think it's a great question. I think there's kind of two, two components to it. You know, one is in our space of consulting, we're in service of our clients. Right. And right. You know, a lot of times today you hear, you know, find your purpose that gives you the energy to come to work, too. And it, it's to help our clients businesses. Right. And to really yeah. help them thrive and survive with all of the attacks that are interrupting their day to day. Right. And so that's and I, and I want to talk a little bit about you know some of the things we're doing with retailers and this concept of using machine learning and, and data to help clients find new revenue sources, for example, right. is a good example. But I think when, when you take that view of being of service to your clients and then I think the, the other piece is, I, I think, um, for better or worse, I, I, it never asked me to put together estimates on work. Right. Because <laughs> and I'll always know that. Right. Because I did a terrible job back at CTT and I do a terrible job of it today. Right. So <laughs> thankfully, you know, at Sabia, we've got amazing structures to help put the right checks and balances. So you That's don't right. do that. But there's there's this thing, I think, that I've always brought to my career, which is just and, and it's frustrating for teams and my family sometimes. too. It's just endless optimism. Right. And and when you when you start with this, you know, belief in in this language of, of compute and, and storage and, and its capability. It's because it can solve so much, right? Yeah. There's just so much flexibility. And we've seen a lot of that, you know, come through the industry. Now, what is accelerating our ability to, to solve these challenges for clients? And, I, you know, I think was uh, an, an injection of energy for, for my careers. You know, okay, it was not a lot of fun having to plug in servers and restart servers to try to keep up with all the Cubs fans looking for season. Yeah. <laughs> that just wasn't fun, right? A lot of angry calls from the clients and the Cubs, right? You don't want to let down the Cubs, right? Of so course. that was really, really hard. And then all of a sudden, AWS launches this thing where, you know, I could put my credit card in and have 100 servers in less time it takes to reboot my laptop, right? right. And so I'm like, holy cow, right? And so all of a sudden, massive energy and optimism for what we can do and how we can help our clients. So I forgot the fact that I was, you know, working nights and weekends plugging in servers. And now I'm like, okay, with my credit card, I could spin up more servers than we had in totality trying to do what we used to do. So that's, that, that optimism and energy kind of helps me, you know, keep, keep that, you know, again, I'm really grateful that, that, uh, you know, keeps me excited about my job and, and what we could do for clients. Um, I think, you know, as I've progressed in my career to, to your other question, you know, how does that apply to today? How does that apply to, to Web3 and Metaverse or decentralization, uh, you know, blockchain, Hyperledger, all of these things? I think they're like cloud computing, another boost of energy because what we can do. And and I think what, what one, one thing that I've probably, um, you know, I've kind of been yelled at enough times with my yeah. optimism. Well, maybe you need to think about its, its impact on privacy and consent, right? right. And how do we help our, our clients do that? Or, you know, how does, uh, a lot of these monopolistic businesses also empower small businesses and how do we bring those two together and so when you think about some of those things and you know handing back some of the control to our consumers mm-hmm. and our creators that's where I again I've got another endless sense of optimism that 
I'm decentralizing the control from these single entities and I'm bringing some of that energy and strength to the individual, right? And so, and, yeah. and again, it's computing and machine learning that's done that, right? At the heart of hyperledger and blockchain, you've got this construct that deledger, you know, distributes trust. Well, if I distribute trust, then I can expand the impact this can have, right? So I was listening to uh, a great podcast from from the founder of Duolingo. And he was talking about, you know, one of their uh, new, I'm a big Duolingo fan. I yeah. Was, I, been, I, I use it. I use it almost on a daily basis, even if it's only for five minutes. <clears throat> but what it's done is it's created and decentralized education and testing. So what he right. was excited about, he, he gave an example where, you know, talking about distributed trust, right? Because block, blockchain and Hyperledger certainly are an example of that, but just compute in general. And so his example was, we've created the world's most successful English test. So in right. the past to get an English test, if you were in a rural section of Africa and you wanted to take an English test that MIT would accept, you, sometimes you either had to drive long distance or fly to a testing center. Right. And oftentimes those testing centers weren't very reliable. He's like, with our Duolingo English test, you can be anywhere in the world with a $300 Android phone, probably still a big hurdle, but cheaper than a flight or a long drive. Yeah. And we've got better constructs so that you don't pay off the testing administrator to be able to pass your, your English exam. So now you think like, that's optimistic to me, right? And so- yeah. How do we make sure we, we balance that optimism with what we've learned about privacy and consent and some of the other downsides of moving too quickly? So I'd love to see us start to inject more of that in, in, the, in the transformation work we do for our clients, as well as some of the big players that we, we depend on, the big cloud and walled garden technology that we depend on to do our job well is, you know, how do we help guide people and industries so that we're, we're, we're tempering this optimism with some intelligence to make sure it's, it's equitable for all. But I love I love that that the idea of endless optimism it resonates hugely with me and I kind of want to double click on it a little bit just because I, I feel like yes it needs to be tempered at times yes it needs to be grounded in something concrete and realism and obviously we can't uh, let's say for example we can't overpromise and underdeliver as a result of that endless optimism right but. I feel like it could be a massive source of energy, not just for yourself as an individual, but as you, you know, in your career, ascended to very senior executive leadership positions and have held such positions for a very long time now and successfully. So it has to be a huge motivating factor for broader organization, but also your teams directly as well as your client. And have you, have you felt the impact that that can have? Because I feel if that's your natural state, you know, that might, that sort of optimism might take effort for people, but Right. For somebody from whom it's a natural state, that that's like a superpower. It, it is. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and I, I think that, that, that is something I'm, I'm continually, you know, I, I bring to my work and it just, because it comes natural to me, I yeah. think. Right. And I, I had to do some reflection on it. Um, I got to speak to my computer science class a couple of years ago because there's pros and cons to it. And um, I, I couldn't think, you know, and it was a similar question, you know, like how, what has influenced your career? And it was a really exciting opportunity. Uh, and, and my wife was like, well, you always say, Yes. <laughs> right. And so, and so like, I didn't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing. Right. So, but you know, I, I think for, for my career, always say yes is, is really helped me along. I think my wife's always, always told me too, like that, that's also scared her. Right. Like, because when you're endlessly optimistic, sometimes you say yes, and then you're, you're burning too much. Right. It's hard yeah. to keep pace with, with all the yeses. But, you know, I thought about, you know, overall the trajectory of my career, I've always said yes as, and mergers and acquisitions always really hard. A lot of times 
they feel like there's a setback and feels like everything blows up. And you, you know, the best analogy I can think about is everything gets really dirty and dusty and then you have to wait for the dust to settle. So that's always been hard, but I've always kind of said, well, we're coming together. Yes, this is a way forward, right? You know, at one point my old boss asked me, Hey, Ray, I think we should take everything we're doing and and put this into a book. And I was like, uh, I think so. I said, yes, but it was a lot of nights and weekends. I had to do a global tour trying to launch the book. Right. But it ended up getting, you know, launched in five different languages. And, uh, you know, I got learnings I never would have gotten in my life. Right. So all these things, like, I I do think there there's, you know, and and I wouldn't want it any differently is is to, you know, to say yes and bring that optimism to the work we do. But, you know, I, I think is, as you go through your career, how do you, how do you temper that with, you know, health and wellness and everything else? And I think that's also a great thing. I think, uh, that, that as a, as a culture, we're rethinking as part of that pandemic, right? You know, can we, can we balance those two tensions? Yeah. And, and as you say, this idea of always saying yes, I mean, that was absolutely my mantra and I'm still comparatively and more and, more, and absolutely still early in my career, only nine years in, but it, I, from day one also would simply say yes to everything, right? Every experience in some way is going to provide positive value for you in the form of a learning or otherwise. But on more than one occasion, to your point, I I have found myself in the middle of the night, you know, working on n number of different activities, right? Or deliverables or, you know, side hustles or passions or whatever the case is, because you just say yes to all of them. Um, You know, and then I think just before we got on the call, like we both mentioned, like you, you have kids, right? Who are approaching teenage years now. I have two young kids and like that, all of that stuff has to come into the mix. You can't, you know, you can't be saying yes to work stuff and saying no to, to your family. Right. Right. But so, so I guess um, my question to you is when did you learn how to do some of that kind of dispassionate prioritization of things? uh, And, and I guess like, uh, when did you become good at it? Right. And how did, right. and did, what kind of like learnings did, did it take for you to finally become good at it? Cause I feel like I'm not good at it yet. And I think a lot of people are in that same situation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I think, you know, absolutely. And you with young kids, you know, I'm sure this is resonating with you. I remember when <laughs> we first started, you know, I said, yes, I, you know, I wanted to start a family. I'm from uh, a first generation family. Family's important. I used to think I wanted a family much bigger, but I, I remember I started a little later than all my friends. Friends. And I was like, you guys did not tell me how hard yeah. it is. You know, again, don't ask me for an estimate, but like, yeah. you know, just not not really internalizing how much your life changes, right? When you already don't sleep a lot, and then now you're even exactly. sleeping less. And and there's, you know, talk about always on, right? Like nothing's more always on than young children, right? And and you know, thank God again, I I, I would never trade it for anything else because that that yes teaches us. To your point, it teaches us this effort to find balance and to, and, you know, I, I don't know, I know a lot of parents say this, but to, you know, be the best version of ourselves, right. Yeah, you know, for you're sure. at that, and, and you're, you're looking at the, you know, that, that reflection that children bring back to you. And, I, you know, I have to credit my family, my wife, my kids with, with helping me just on that balance of, of, of trying to, to find more, um, more balance in, in that journey and, and bringing together health, wellness, family and, and career. And I think all of that, that's a really important piece. 
I think the other thing I always worked really hard too. I love to travel. Yeah. Um, and I've been fortunate enough, right? When my role has been more global than others, I've gotten to travel all over the world. And I'm really grateful my, my family was coming with me. I took them on. Oh, very cool. Things, right. I'm like, okay, let's get on a plane, right? Especially when they're younger. And so I was lucky enough to make that investment, bring them with me. And my wife is an amazing traveler as, as well. And, and that, and that helped too. That, that helps drive that balance, keep it top of mind, you know, still try to, to, uh, you know, make progress on, on aspirations and, and company goals. Uh, so that, that was a big piece too, but I think it's, a, it's a forever journey. You're just always trying to figure it out. And, um, <clears throat> it, it, sometimes it's in balance and sometimes it's out of balance, you know, like, it, and, and, you know, th- there's, you're looking for the cues to help you find that balance. You know, what is yeah. it that helps me move that teeter totter in the right direction to, to do, to get there. But, you know, I had, I had somebody speak, my, my cousin was graduating and I love, uh, college and, you know, she was graduating med school. I love graduations. Yeah. Um, and, and the speaker was amazing. She was a, uh, medical doctor and she had all of this advice and she was talking about holding her baby in one hand, talking to a patient and trying to clean her bathroom. Right. You know, yeah. cause she was having company. And, and it was at that point. And I always remember that, that uh, anecdote because she realized, you know, finding balance is about being comfortable living out of balance. Right. You know, oh, obviously at that, that moment in her life, she was not in balance. Right? Right. She had a baby. She was trying to keep up with her patients and she was cleaning the bathroom because she was getting gas, right. Having gas. It's like, okay, you know, everybody tries to tell you, find that balance, do it. But no, life's about being out of balance. The best you can do is build the techniques to help you find that balance, if if you will. Well, I mean, so much of of what you just said, I I think has helped validate. And and honestly, that's like a nice little happy uh, side effect of this podcast is I find successful people like yourself to validate that some of the things I'm feeling or experiencing selfishly, I'm not crazy for feeling or experiencing those. And, And this idea of I love that concept. That's beautifully put. The idea of uh, finding balance by developing comfort in living out of balance. And I think to myself, like, I don't have necessarily that exact example, but I've certainly been at the gym at midnight while also having like a call with, you know, somebody for work as we prep for like a workshop the next day and we go through our speaking notes or whatever. Uh, I've done that before. I 100% have, right? And then those, you know, regular life, family life, work life, all colliding together. And I think it's interesting, um, you know, some of the stuff that you said, just because I think for myself, and I, and I feel like I hear it in your voice. It's very clearly you're passionate about what you do, right? And 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 technology and what the impact you're able to drive with it. Uh, and, and similarly, you know, I have a lot of passion in what we do at Publicity Sapien, right? In my role in data strategy, but as a result of that a lot of my identity is tied to my work is tied to who I am as a professional, as well as, as right. with my family. And so as a result, you know, and I feel like maybe you've had similar challenges is that when you're, for example, prioritizing other things, even things that are objectively more important, like your family, you can't help, but in the back of your mind thinking I'm missing, or I'm not making progress on these ambitions or aspirations with the other part of my identity, which is work. And that's a tough thing to balance sometimes. And I'm curious, you know, obviously you mentioned it was a journey, but have you experienced the same thing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and what you're describing, right? Like I, I, I always go back to that speech because I, I do think of trying to find balance on that teeter-totter. What yeah. are the things that are giving you the cues that, hey, I'm a little further out balanced than I should be? 
right? Yeah. And, and maybe it's while I'm at the gym taking a phone call, right? <laughs> or I've got my daughter in my hand while I clean the bathroom and talk to a patient, right? Like, so right. all of those are, are, are kind of those cues. But I also kind of think, you know, again, and this is where I'm really grateful is when you find the, the, the thing at, 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 in your career that you're, you know, people say passion and purpose, but what doesn't feel like work, right? Like all those things are, are kind of, you know, trite uh, things. But when you find that, then it becomes easier, right? And then you're finding the right balance. But if you're, if you're noticing, Hey, I'm, I'm a little off kilter and not being centered with the family when I'm reading this latest article about Dolly or open GPT three, right? Like, it's yeah. so, like, you know, that's a good example, right? Cause I just went through that recently. So then that's a cue. And what's that cue to help, help you balance that? Because I, like, I do think, right. We've got an identity at work. We've got an identity with family, with our hobbies, et cetera. But I, <clears throat> I think once you find those right things and this, this takes, this takes a bit of a lifetime, but like my, you know, two of my favorite hobbies are mountain biking and skiing. And I've right. been doing it with friends since I, w- I was a little kid and I still do it. And I still wonder, I'm like, wow, I, I have never have a lack of energy to go for a mountain bike ride or skiing. Right. And that's because I found something that, that works. Right. And that's where my energy flows. And I think I'm lucky enough too that work is that same thing. Right. Like, yeah. It never feels like a burden to continue learning about how we could help our clients with a lot of these, um, you know, new new technologies and capabilities. Like it just feels exciting and interesting. So th- then, okay, that's fine, right? And and maybe those are identities, or or maybe they're just like that's where our our energy sits. Then look for those cues, right? Like, <laughs> is this too much? Okay, I need to to move the teeter totter a little bit by putting the phone down and you know finding a technique to to balance that a little better. Um, right. That's hard, you know. And there, you know, a lot of people turn to things like like meditation and you know time away. Right? Like I find I, I you know find a, a daily balance to help me keep that in mind it is meditation i find you know things like mountain biking and skiing in particular when i go for a mountain bike ride you know that's a couple hours of forgetting everything and so yeah. and that balance that helps me find okay that that's a little bit of a moment of balance right sometimes it's imbalance i'm not mountain biking too hard it's 100 degrees out but whatever it is right it's yeah. a those cues are, are all techniques that over time they get more and more comfortable and then finding that balance gets easier and easier No, that resonates with me as well. And I'm basketball is that for me. And I play a couple times a week and whether or not I play and how I play when I'm there, um, you know, it literally can dictate my emotional and like uh, mental state for the balance of that week. Right. And, yeah. and it's, it has a really powerful effect. And to your point, like you said, it's a couple hours of forgetting everything. It's like you have a good night, you play well, you're running off instinct, you're constantly engaged, you're not thinking about anything. Right. Your body's just and mine are just kind of all working together to achieve achieve whatever is in front of you on the court. And the thing is, those like, I'll play until I can't move. Right. Yeah, and the yeah. next day you wake up and you're so broken physically, but mentally you're sharper and happier and emotionally you're happier, I guess, than after anything else. Right. So I, that resonates with me hugely, hugely. And I, I think that's a super important thing. And I always advocate for people having particularly something that's like physically exhaustive, right. That, yeah. that takes over and forces you into a flow state, right. Where both body and mind are kind of zeroed in on something together that really, I think creates a release that 
few other things can can replicate. Um, so so I, it's a huge that resonates with me hugely. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, and and I think there's a wide spectrum. There's something for everybody, right? Oh, for like, sure. You know, like we we probably grew up playing competitive sports, so things like that. So it's a little bit a different level of intensity, but it it could be walking, could be yoga. All of these constructs help us you know, get that time to let the body and mind find a little bit more balance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to circle back now into the, you know, the, you're, you're jumping back into the career journey though is, you know, in those mergers and acquisitions, right? You mentioned the fact that you go to like the biggest software company in the world at Microsoft, right? Then you go to one of the biggest agencies in the world, obviously enormously different organizational cultures, structures, growth mindsets, right? In terms of what they do also in terms of their services, very different. But for yourself, like you continued forwards and upwards momentum and you continue to ascend into more senior roles. How did you do that? How did you navigate that? How did you continue to identify the right roles and opportunities that project, pushed you forwards and upwards in your career as somebody who's clearly very driven and, and, and motivated. Yeah. So I, I, I think, um, to some degree, and I was, I was in a meeting with our tour, uh, back, back at, uh, the end of last year. And, uh, he was introducing me to the client. He's like, Hey, you know, raise a little bit like the UN, he can stitch other <laughs> parts of the different group. And I joked, well, more like the least disagreeable option across these yeah. different parts of the group. But I, I think at the end of the day, and this is kind of the exciting part of consulting and services oriented is, you know, I, I would, whether at Microsoft or as we went into Publicis and to be fair, like the trajectory kind of built on itself too. Right. And I've always been lucky enough and, you know, I'm grateful at, at uh, in the early days at Razorfish pre-Microsoft, I sat next to the head of media. Right. So right. I, I ran technology and engineering. So it was about all of these folks who had to find the highest degree of billability, building stuff for our clients. And her world was completely different. Her world was clients giving her her uh, teams guidance and budget to go out and buy media. Right. right. Like, and I had no idea. And, and back then, media meant to me, do you mean videos? Right. Yeah. Media advertising. Right. It took me a year to get used to that term as advertising, not just video. Right. So it was it was really interesting. Like, and, and I think I, I've been fortunate enough and, and I'm grateful to have been able to work with people that help us stitch these two together. Right. And, and if, you know, actually looking at it that way, it was okay. Uh, we've got this overarching strategy and, and I know, uh, the, the podcast has spoken with, with Rashad and others, right. But people like Rashad and others were laying this strategy, which we call the, the growth loop today at, at Publicis. And we at Sapien extend this to our clients, but that's always been in my mind where we were headed. Right. And so helping to translate that to the next layer down from this, okay, how do I bring together everything that interacts with a customer's experience, whether it's off their digital or physical properties or on them. And that vision means I've got to bring together the best of what overall Publicis has. And at the time, it, we were called Avenue A Razorfish. And then it was the same. It was, to be fair, right? Like, even though we were in the software company, like like the other biggest world laws of software companies, they're really in the ad business, right? Like right. Facebook and, and Google, they're uh, you know tech companies, but what they do is sell ads. So then 
then how does that all come together in a positive experience and vision for, for what we're doing at our clients? So it's always been, okay, let me make sure I'm taking that strategy that Microsoft and publicists have and bring that to a translation that our group could be. And, and in some degrees, you know, and even today, it's a little bit like that, you know, when, when you're in the UN, you have to put a headset on so you can hear other people, you know, that happens to us a lot, whether it's, you know, the language of publicist media, the language of publicist ape or language of publicist communication there, there, you know, we, we always make fun. We're used to in the old days, make fun of tribal language, but we've got a ton of this, right? Yeah. Yeah. We throw out acronyms a mile a minute on the sapient side. They use language that we have different terms in the publicist media side. So, you know, I, 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 I enjoy bringing that, that, that all together. And I think it's a little bit my upbringing too, right? I I grew up in a multicultural first generation household, right? So it's kind of, like, and I always tell this, this funny story. My, my, so my father was from Puerto Rico and my grandparents, my abuelo, so only spoke Spanish. And my, my grandma, um, on my mom's side was, was from Ireland. Okay. Brogue and that side of the family had a thick brogue. And, you know, we, we spent all the holidays together. The common ground really was, you know, uh, Catholicism. Yeah. And, and the Irish side would always speak really loudly to, <laughs> to the Puerto Rican side. I'm like, you know, changing your volume isn't going to make things any clearer for them. That's right? right. So I always spent a lot of time, you know, kind of listening to different accents and different styles. And, you know, maybe it goes back to that. But, you know, that's that's always been a part of my life is is trying to bring together all these different elements and you know really and and that's you know again it comes back to service when we bring these elements together in the right way we're really helping our clients be successful right and so it's easy to do when you know this is focused on 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 helping our businesses succeed and i think you know it's interesting about um, this industry we fell into, right? You know, especially during the dot-com days, and I, I would contend even before, this disruption becomes existential for our big clients, right? right. You know, like we, we always say this, but the pandemic accelerated that, right? You, you know, you would have been disrupted if you didn't enable buy online, pick up in store, right? And, yeah. you know, so all the, these are like really, really urgent um, uh, things that we, we have to do to get our clients off of life support in some ways. And so it, 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 it when you when you look at how much value we can bring, that's pretty exciting. No, and I, I, I obviously that makes complete sense. And I think what's really interesting about how you've articulated it is, you know, this idea of being the UN and being able to stitch not just technologies and concepts together, but also the agencies inside of something as big as Publicis Group that all have their distinct value props and ways of working into your point, languages like these travel languages to bring all that together. That's a unique skill and something that makes you distinct and valuable uh, in a way that, uh, you know, other, everyone's got to kind of find their niche value, right? That thing that is going to be their brand and what they bring to the table that is totally unique. And it seems like you've fallen into that leaning into kind of heritage and upbringing, but maybe not, con- what, what, I guess, was it conscious as you kind of saw these opportunities? No one else is bringing all this together. I see it. I need to make people understand this. Was that something you were doing consciously? I, you know, to be honest, it, it's really been reflecting on it that does that, right? You know, I, I don't know if I was consciously um, trying to, and I think there's there's a degree of um, you know kind of reserving judgment too, right? Like, okay, I'm I'm in a learning stage. I don't know that 
I know enough to be judgmental for what these different things are. Right. Um, and, and I think it, I, you know, to, to some extent, I sometimes saw it as survival, right? Like, ah, well, you know, to be honest, right. If I want to keep my job, I got to figure out how to plug these, these things together. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, a little bit of that, you know, just like our clients, uh, are, you know, risk being on life support, if they don't make these changes, that's kind of how I looked at it too. Uh, and then, you know, again, uh, you know, giving credit to really great strategy leaders that can frame vision for the future. That's always been inspiration for me. Right. You know, and I, I talked to, you know, people like I, my, my, my former CEOs and bosses and the, you know, and, and our clients leadership, uh, you know, people like Rashad, I think just seeing, okay, they, they're, if, if, if you listen between their, you know, really wise words and, and, and the unique ways that they um, talk about how the future does not, you know, uh, live in the containers of the past, like things like that have always kind of, yeah. okay, that that's pulling me along. Well, how does that apply to, you know, this customer data platform we're building, right? And, right. and, and you know, in the past, I thought the, 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 the distance between that strategy and that customer data platform was was further. But now I think that that distance continues to decrease. And it right. could be because we do things faster, right? You know, right. it took us a year, 2015, even 10 years ago. Now it takes us a fraction of that time. So you're, you're shrinking that distance, let alone we've got methodologies like how based on agile and iterative. But when, when that distance starts to shrink, you know that you've got to stay closer to, to the right strategic changes to help our client. For sure. And I, I love that you bring up customer data platform, because as you kind of talk about, you know, that coming closer to strategy and, 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 you know, that's the exact intersection that like the space I work in with, with data strategy. And, you know, I come from data analytics and, you know, even nine years ago, I've said this before on this podcast, but data was positioned very differently. Like we were a resource, we came in, we played a specific role on an account or for a piece of work for a client. But now, you know, you look at speed and it's strategy, product, engineering, experience, and data. Data is one of our five core pillars, and we're advocating for it to be one of the five core pillars of every organization as they embark on digital transformation. And to me, it's hugely exciting to have been in so early in my career, seen kind of the catapulting of data into the center of everything. And now I'd love for you to kind of expand a little bit on like how you've zeroed in on customer data platform and the incredible value it can unlock for our clients, because I think it's such a critical aspect of, of all, you know, DBT endeavors. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think to, to some extent, when you think about what customer data means, right. You know, and, and it's, it's really the place where we can find those insights that change our customers' business, right? You know, fundamentally, right? And, and when you think about the size of the opportunity, right now, we, we're not spending enough energy and budget in there, right? So even if you look at, um, take a CDP example, or, or even um, what, what oftentimes a data scientist will, will apportion in terms of effort, is that most of the data science is still 80% or 70% data engineering, data ranking. Right. So if we're only spending, you know, that 20, 30 percent on the part that is driving insights and machine learning, that is, is driving orchestration, growth, uh, monetization and like all these other aspects of the business, we still have a huge opportunity in front of us. Now, like cloud computing did in the past, I think we continue to iterate on modern technologies that are just making this more and more possible, right? So if you look at cloud computing, one of their biggest advancements is, has been technology. And, and that used to be one of the big impetuses we used to talk about a lot for moving to the cloud.
about was right. you know, Google had written this this white paper um, called Big Table, um, and it was this amazing innovation that allowed them to index everything in the internet, right? And yeah. then some guy at Yahoo said, "Hey, that's a really interesting innovation." He took Big Table as a white paper and wrote the Hadoop platform. That was Doug Cutting, and then the Hadoop platform. Now I can rent that on on the on, on AWS as Elastic Map Reduce. So all of a sudden, what used to take years now you have the power that you can rent for 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 minutes on the hour. That 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 same power that drives the amazing insights that that a, a technology and a service like Google offers. So when you start to bring that into our clients, and I, I'd say many of our clients are still just starting Hadoop Journey One. Right. And so sometimes I have to bite my tongue. I'm hearing clients saying, hey, I'm building a new Hadoop cluster. I'm like, great. You're now 10 years behind what Google's doing. Right. Like I can put a credit card in and move faster than you. Right. And so it it gives me hope that there's still opportunity for us to help bring bring that to our clients. I think what we're what we're missing there is and I I think we're we're super well positioned on both the data science and the data engineering side. But it's it's helping to again, close that, uh, it's, it's getting uh, a shorter distance between strategy and implementation, but let, let's close it even more too. Right. And, and that's again, where I'm, I'm getting more optimistic. I had a couple of client conversations this week on closing the gap between what their customer data can do and how they can monetize it. Right. And, and when we talk about monetization, this is about improving experience, improving personalization. Sure. A big anchor of that is advertising and media networks, but what that means underneath is you're building the the muscle to be able to understand and drive insights out of your data. Advertisers right. don't want to just show up like NASCAR on a client's commerce website. They want something that's unique and valuable and has the same value pr- proposition for that ad impression that it does for the customer going through your website. So when you start to see, oh, okay, now the democratization of data, the opening up of, of having to only depend on the wall of gardens, you're going to see more and more opportunity for data to achieve a lot of the goals we we're, we're setting out to do because we're closing that distance to, to revenue. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and tying everything to revenue impact and to return on investment and overall organizational business impact, I think is, you know, a, a huge pivot that is, is, uh, allowing for the, the just total clarity around the value that data can drive for an ex- organization through data-driven decisioning and, and experiences, et cetera, for sure. And, and, but now, you know, as you articulate this, right, um, you know, it, it kind of brings another question to mind and, and you've been in kind of executive leadership C-suite roles for a long time now. And, and when you're in that sort of role, your success and your growth is intrinsically tied to the growth and success of the organization. And so that means when you, for example, really zero in on a space like, for example, data monetization and customer data platforms, you're doing that because you think it's going to grow the organization, which in turn grows you in your career, right? And your your kind of uh, stature. So you know, talk about how those all come together when you ascend to, you know, executive leadership and how you kind of have to balance where you place your bets, knowing that impacting the organization impacts thousands of people, but that also you still have your career to think about and your, your growth and how you kind of tie those together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think, and, and I think our, our culture at Sapient is very oriented towards 
showing that client success. Right. right. And, and that's where I think we, we have to start, you know, no, let, let's understand what our culture is and what it means to be a successful business. And, and I think in our culture, it's helping to deliver and show that success when, when we deliver clients. And so that that's number one. Right. And then right. that gives, at least in my experience, I think, and, and I was debating this with a, a colleague at one of our, our sister agencies today. I think there's, there's this effort. Well, what do I need to do to invest ahead of time? So I'm confident delivering on something or some areas that might be new versus getting started. And so I think number one, our culture is let us prove, show by, by, uh, and, and, and prove by doing, right? So what, right. what are the examples too? Now, fortunately, that doesn't have to come, you know, just from nights and weekends from us. It comes from partners too, right? And right. so we've had some amazing, fantastic partners, whether it's Epsilon, whether it's, it's, uh, Citrus, whether it's, you know, even the core cloud partners like Google, Amazon and, and Azure, they're all helping us deliver this at our clients because. Right. They, they see a value proposition. You know, if you're a cloud provider, it's driving years worth of consumption, right? Right, they right, have a right. much better business model than us. If you're a <laughs> services provider, this is getting us the new project over our competing services partners. So I think that that becomes the starting point. And then I think, you know, one thing I, I probably need to be doing better and, and, and at different points in my career, I've spent more time doing is just helping to drive that education for some new of these pieces, right? And I, I talk a lot about this with leaders in some of the other new spaces like like AJ and I talk a lot about how are we going to help educate uh, our teams on on these new web3 and metaverse technologies and that that's a tricky balance too because again you still need these you know, really powerful examples even if they're proof of concepts right. to help get the rest of the enterprise to contextualize what you're talking about right um, you know so, so and it takes practice too I think actually for some of the areas of data monetization, there's been been some ways that we could have done it a lot better and rolled it out a lot better. We didn't drive quite enough clarity and strategy. I think we're getting there now, but you know, getting to a strategic way to communicate a new solution or a new offering, it's it's important. Um, and you know, I, I might have over-indexed towards delivering on those first couple of clients and under-indexed on ensuring that we can communicate it well. But I think now I'm catching it up. So it's a little bit, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier. What is the right balance for getting a new capability right. off the ground, or even not even just a new capability, sometimes getting to a new iteration on an existing capability. Right, right. And for sure. And and as specifically as you talk about data monetization, I think to a couple of industries, like, you know, I, over time, different types of companies in different industries have evolved, right? If you think, what about an airline? It's, uh, airlines have become like logistics and data companies, right? Like if you think about what is actually happening at an airline, and then you think about like an automotive manufacturer, they used to be manufacturing companies. Now they are connected services and, and literally data companies. The amount of data a vehicle, every single vehicle generates is just, it's mind boggling, right? And then, so now what do we do with all that other than just creating a better experience for, for the, the user, the owner of the vehicle? There's so much value to be unlocked with that data and this whole concept of data monetization. I think we're just obviously just scratching the surface. So selfishly, I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit about your perspective on that, particularly in the automotive space. It's where my main client is now. But yeah. I just, it's a topic that I have a huge interest in. I'm a huge, um, you know, car geek. So I, I love, love double click on this, but 
yeah, like what is what does that look like? Tesla's yeah. obviously building a lot of potential for it. Other um, manufacturers are doing interesting things, but how do we extract value out of it in a way that generates value for the business, but also ultimately the end user? Yeah, and I think that's the number one north star, right? And so you know, Amazon just released their earnings. They did fantastically well with their data monetization, their ad network. Sure. Um, and I remember it was probably about fifteen years ago. Jason Goldberg, uh, publicist, commerce strategy lead, he said to me, you know. Amazon makes a ton of money on, on advertising. This was a while ago. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I never saw an Amazon ad. And yeah. I went deliberately searching for it. And he, I couldn't find an explicit ad because it integrated it into the experience. Right. So there, there's a couple. And, and the way they integrate it, you know, sometimes it's always good for the consumer. Sometimes it's bad for a competitor, right? And so, you know, there was a, a couple of articles that came out. I think it was last fall, early spring, where Amazon would use the product interest people were showing for the product. Products Amazon sold on their marketplaces, right? And a lot of times it's our big CPG customers, right? Yeah. And they would say, okay, there's a lot of interest in batteries. I'm going to make an Amazon Basics battery, right? And right. so, and so, you know, not only were the battery competitors losing in two different ways, but they were losing because they were buying ads on Amazon, and then Amazon was using the ads <laughs> right. to make competing products. Like, oh my god, this is terrifying, right? And I might be messing that up a bit, but I do know that that that's a big place. But the point is, whenever we do the kind of one of the hearts of data monetization, which is a media network, when we rebuild that for a client, there's zero percent boundaries. Clients are never going to move away from their commerce-based experience. Like that's our end goal. So then start with that, number one, you know, you're not alienating the customers. And then number two, it's also looking at it from a collaboration and co-op perspective. And what, what uh, signal deprecation, privacy and regulation laws are, are showing us is that sharing personally identifiable information is going to get harder and harder, even when consumers give consent. But fortunately, we've got all of these ways that we could create both synthetic data or build a differential privacy mechanism. And so there, there, I met with a couple of, of the players in this space. Here's traditional players like LiveRamp, a newer player-ish, like InfoSum, which is they can build matches between two different data sets without exchanging any data, without moving any customer data. Right? right. You put these technologies on the different end nodes, and then you create a collaboration opportunity. So now, how does that apply to the auto industry, right? And so really interesting ways you could think about that is auto has a couple of things that are really important for the way they, they move forward. And I, I think monetization and marketplaces are intrinsically linked as well. So when you're an auto company, you want to be the destination for helping your consumers with anything they need around their vehicle. Right. Right. Tires, windshield wipers, batteries. Like I'm a proud Fiat 500 electric owner. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Bought this one really cheap a couple of years ago. And it's like our daily driver. This yeah. tiny little car too. I'm not a big guy, but like even for us, we barely fit in it. But what I, what I love about it, and I think is going to be a big impact on the auto industry is I don't take it for service, right? Like I've had right. it four years. I've had one software upgrade because it's not as fancy as a Tesla. But the only thing I do is I change uh, the light bulbs wear out kind of fast. I don't know why windshield <laughs> wipers things like that so what's that marketplace of needs ray has around his his 
is fiat 500? And then how do I create a way that fiat's data and the needs, the partners that I need to work with come together? Make it easier for me to find the right light bulbs, whether I want to, you know, test out one of these new cool, fancy ones in my headlights or, you know, just replace it with the standard. Whatever it means is, okay, I'm going to create that that collaboration space, that, that that data co-op. And in some cases, it may mean enabling campaigns that fiat sells to, you know, Mopar or not Mopar. Yeah, Mopar, but, or, or to somebody that can help service that. Right. And so that's, that's the, the, the real cornerstone of the opportunity. It's not just, Hey, we're, we're never going to interrupt or, or create a negative experience for our consumers, but we're going to answer all of the needs they have around what my purpose as, as their, their automotive of choice is right and and that's really you know helping enable better driving so one thing build a marketplace another thing create collaborations and co-ops and 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 oftentimes the way those become uh uh put in or, or become put into practice is by a, a co-op where i bring together fiat's data with a, a a windshield wiper manufacturer's data and i run an off-site advertising campaign right and what that drives is now i know more about this consumer you know i know ray is really interested in, you know, uh, um, the Fiat uh, Abarth or whatever it might be, right? And so all of that is feeding into my identity graph. I don't just have a CDP. I know Ray's identity. I know the other aspects of identity. I know he's a mountain biker, right? And then that should, at the end of the day, make me uh, a better partner you right. know, and create more loyal customers. Yeah. I mean, I find th- th- this topic is obviously like super interesting to me as it is so relevant to my profession and, and, and obviously the field that I, my capability is in, but just, you know, as a, as an automotive fan too, I'm very excited to just see how those new types of interactions with the customer start to manifest and take shape that are so heavily data driven. Um, it, it's such an exciting moment and exciting time. And what it makes me think about is kind of like this, uh, a final closing question to ask you, because like, obviously you've been with this organization for a long time. And you've seen it have a couple of different identities. In the past, we've been a pure technology consultancy. We've been a, you know, digital marketing agency in part, right? Now we're, you know, in the early stages of our journey as an enabler of digital business transformation. And as, but like, can you, do you have a prediction, I guess, for what the next identity for, for whatever that version of, of Google Sapient is down the line? Or, or is it simply too early in our current, in our, in our current journey to, to even predict that far ahead? You know, no, it, it's, it's, it's great, right? And sometimes it's hard to make this transition, right? Like yeah. I find it, sometimes it's easier to explain to clients, colleagues, and friends that, well, we're systems integrators, you know, like yeah. maybe it's my bias as, you know, being in the tech team, right? Like, I, I, well, at the end of the day, I just built software, right? Like all these other questions, what does it mean? Well, we're going to build software and maybe it's digital physical software, maybe it's just digital app, et cetera. So, I, I, you know, I'm still anchored a little bit back there. I, I do think bringing in the transformational aspects. It used to be the business had to wait for technology to finish, right? And then cloud computing came around again. And that gap between business strategy and delivery, it shrank a little more, right? I didn't have to plug servers in, et cetera. Then cloud computing created things like all of the capabilities we have with BigQuery or Redshift or or Bigtable or any of the other data capabilities, right? So then that shrank the time a little. So time and time and time. So it, it gets smaller and smaller. So now I think... Where, you know, again, closer to strategy and at the end of the day, strategy is revenue, 
Right. right. And so now transformation will help us fill the gaps we had, right? Like, well, my technology is out ahead of your business strategy now, right? Like it yeah. used to be you were waiting for me. I'm ahead because you haven't made the organizational change. And right. somehow your dysfunctional organization has, you know, three different technologies that drive your personalization rule. So I can't transform the way you personalize because I have to transform the rule in three different places. That's bad experimentation design. We can't quite get there. So I think that what happens when, when that, um, that, that distance between what we're doing from a, a speed perspective to transform the experience, engineering, the data, the technology, and, and a revenue perspective, maybe it's, it's we're more of a, a business partner, right? You know, and, right. and this is where Randall and, and a lot of our, 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 our colleagues is really pushing kind of the, the, the data monetization effort. But, okay, we, we're shrinking the distance between revenue and helping your business. Now, it's easier to talk about that with, with a media network because it's a net new revenue stream. But right. how do I get your earn your confidence that, hey, I don't necessarily need a net revenue stream, but this improved approach to your experience and your personalization means new revenue. So right. now it changes the relationship with our clients, right? right now, now a lot of our work is fees for service. Maybe it's, no, just th this is what we estimate we could do. Let us get in there and do that. And we've got this, you know, really brilliant tested model that we've used across the auto industry that we know is going to bring new revenue for your audiences and your buyers, right? And and it's going to bring those buyers to to your business and help grow your business. And, and that would be that would be a different lens of transformation it would be much, much more partnership based, much more revenue based. You know, hopefully that's where we get. Um, because uh, that that might be a big shift. Absolutely, I, I think it's it's really that the idea that for so long we were trying to shrink the distance between business and strategy and technology, and technology was the laggard, the thing that impeded yeah. progress. For that role to have reversed, where technology has now outpaced an organization's strategic ability to stay up uh, up to speed and, and to change organizationally and structurally to to keep up, is a really interesting kind of. Um, Concepts flip, right? And, and and I think that that is very aptly put. And I'm very excited to see how we partner with our clients going forward to help now strategy and the organization catch up to what technology can do and empower. Right. Um, but yeah, Ray, I want to I want to thank you for your time today. This has been such a rich conversation. I think there's an enormous amount for people to walk away from, not just about the industry and the space, but also about how to navigate a career here. And, you know, I appreciate your time and I look forward to catching up on the podcast again in the future. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's been a pleasure. Grateful for the time. I, I love the, the dialogue and the conversation. And uh, th thanks for, for asking me to be part of it.